have a seat. Well, good morning. If you know me at all, especially if you hang out with me during baseball season, you'll know that I am a fan of the Chicago Cubs. This is my mask here. You know, it's like I had a couple of Go Cubs goes out there. Uh, my son and I became Cubs fans back in 2013 when we lived in the Chicago area, and immediately we went through years of disappointment and heartbreak kind of like the 2020 Broncos season. We had a lot of that with the Cubs. But in 2016, the same year the Broncos won the Super Bowl, the Cubs finally won the World Series. For the first time since 1908, it was the longest drought ever in professional sports. Now, to be a Cubs fan in 2016 was to be a part of a much bigger story. I was a part of the 108 years of heartbreak. I was a part of the dramatic seventh inning, extra inning victory in game, in game seven. I was not alone. I was one of millions of fans in Chicago and all over the world that celebrated what they had waited for their whole lives. Now, after their dramatic World Series win, the city of Chicago hosted a parade. Now, I didn't go, but my daughter-in-law, Beth, was there. It wasn't just any victory parade. It was 108 years of pent-up frustration bursting forth into unbridled jubilation as five million people gathered in the streets of Chicago to celebrate the victory. Five million people. Now, to put that in context of how big of a crowd that is, it was the largest gathering of people ever in the history of the United States, even in the Western Hemisphere. It was the seventh largest gathering of people ever in the history of the world. And since the beginning of the time, this is the largest non-religious gathering of people. Uh, some people would debate whether it was non-religious, but I think you can have a religion and be a Cubs fan, and those are separate things. Now, my son and I had no idea when we decided to be Cubs fans that we would be part of something that momentous, that historical. Now, of course, we didn't do anything on the field to help them win, but we still felt very much a part of the victory along with these millions of people. To this day, when I meet another Cubs fan, we share an unshakable bond. Together, we are part of something much bigger than ourselves. Now, if this is true for being followers of a baseball team like the Cubs or maybe followers of the Rockies or the Broncos, how much more true is it for us as followers of Jesus Christ? When we decide to follow Jesus, we become part of an even bigger family. Billions of people throughout thousands of years all over the world, and our reward will be living in heaven forever in the presence of God. And that's going to be even better than winning a World Series or a Super Bowl. So today we're going to look at First Peter chapter 2, where Peter clues us in to what it means to be a part of the family of God. Last week, Pastor Jonathan began our series on 1 Peter by encouraging you to consider the story of your life, how God is inviting you to put away the false stories that have controlled you and to embrace God's true story for your life, the story of the good news of His grace for you. Today, I want all of us together to consider that we are not alone in this story. The true story of your life is not the story of an individual, but a story of a family, the family of God. The true story of your life is not just the story of me, 
but it's a story of we. Now, in America, we tend to be highly individualistic. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We take pride in our independence. Now, just think about it. At some point during the lockdown with all the restrictions, have you ever reacted like, nobody's going to tell me what to do? We are very individualistic. This independent spirit that is part of our culture often leads us to read the Bible looking for individual messages. What does God's Word have to say for me and my life? Now, while that can be an important part of our study of Scripture, God does indeed speak to us individually, but we sometimes miss the fact that many of the truths and promises in God's Word are not intended for individuals, but for groups of believers living together in community. Most of the time when you see the word you, Y-O-U, in the Bible, it's plural. If a Southerner had done a Bible translation, it might say y'all. But when we read it in English, we read the word you, we assume it's, it's singular. We assume it's about me, but you could often mean plural, and usually it is plural in the Bible. In the first 10 verses of chapter 2 that we're looking at today, Peter is helping us to understand the we part of our story with God, and all the word you in this passage are all plural. So when you come to Christ as a believer, you're not alone. You become part of God's family, the body of Christ. And a big part of your story is what you share in common with other believers. So as we dig into this passage this morning, let's look for those parts of the story that are true for all of us together as believers. How is our we story bigger than our me story? At the end of 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 23, as Jonathan taught us last week, Peter writes that since we are born again, since we are now believers in Christ, we should have a sincere brotherly love, that we should love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He picks up that thought at the beginning of chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In order for brotherly love to thrive, we need to put away the attitudes that damage relationships, actions that hurt other people, things like malice, and deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. Well, that's much easier said than done. I mean, how do you do away with envy? What I'd really like is for Peter to give me a guide for erasing sinful attitudes from my heart and mind in three simple steps. But what he does is actually much better. If we are filling our hearts and our minds with things that are pure, it will help us to grow out of those sinful habits. As new believers, we are to be like newborn children, humbly learning and growing on what Peter calls pure spiritual milk, the Word of God, your relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit living in us so that we can grow up, to grow mature in our salvation. And remember, this is a story of we, not just a story of me. So it is something that we do together with other believers. We're not left to grow up on our own, but in fellowship with others. Throughout this passage, Peter uses lots of vivid imagery, word pictures, to teach us about Jesus and what it means to be a part of the family of God. He starts off with this tender image of a newborn infant naturally craving the taste of milk 
in order to grow. And for the next few verses, he uses a variety of word pictures of rocks and stones that help us see how the church, the family of God, is built together on the foundation of Jesus. So we'll talk about verses 4 and 5 in a moment, but first let's skip ahead to verse 6, where Peter quotes several Old Testament passages about stones. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter really goes to town with this stone imagery here. Perhaps it because he, he often heard Jesus use the imagery of stones in building. Jesus even quoted some of these same verses in his own teaching. Maybe this came from Jesus' career as a builder or craftsman. We think of him as a carpenter, but in those days, he would have worked with both wood and stone. Last week, Jonathan mentioned that Jesus gave Simon the nickname of Peter. In Matthew 16, when Simon was the first disciple to recognize that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, Jesus gave him the nickname of Peter, which means rock, kind of like the word petrified. And Jesus said, upon this rock, the fact that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church. So the idea of communicating spiritual truths with this imagery of rocks and stones was something that Peter learned directly from Jesus. It was commonly used in the Old Testament as well in prophecies about the promised Messiah. Isaiah 28.16 talks about God laying a cornerstone in Zion, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The stone that the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone comes from Psalm 118.22. Isaiah 8.14 says that the Messiah will become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. All this imagery about stones and rocks may seem kind of archaic to us, but much of it would have been obvious to people who read Peter's letter in the first century. You see, Zion is a biblical term for the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish religion. So when we read about God placing a cornerstone in Zion, it's an image of building the foundation of a new temple in Jerusalem. The cornerstone is the most important and foundational part of a stone structure. It's the biggest rock of a building. It has to be cut just right. Whatever the angle of the cornerstone is, that will be the angle of the whole building since all the other stones will be placed on top of it. This is a picture of a wall on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. It's really tall, probably 60 or 70 feet high. You can't quite tell from this picture. But this temple was destroyed nearly 2,000 years ago, but much of the surrounding area still stands. Now, you can't see the foundational cornerstone of this wall. It's now buried underground, but you can see all the very large stones that are placed on top of it. Some of these stones are 20 feet long. Now, if the cornerstone is not level, if its angle is not just right, the entire structure will be unstable. So, of course, the cornerstone has to be perfect. If not, the builders will reject it because if the foundation is off, even by just a bit, the whole building will be off by a lot. So, Peter here is saying that Jesus 
is the chosen and precious cornerstone of the new temple. Even though Jesus was perfect in every way, the religious leaders of that day rejected him. They didn't believe that he was the Christ, the Son of God, their Savior. But if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, if he is our Savior, he is our cornerstone, the foundation of our faith. But to those who reject him, Jesus becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. If they toss him aside, he becomes a stumbling block to them. They won't have a faith with a solid foundation. They won't have a Savior. Peter's big point here is that these prophecies about the Messiah, about Jesus being the cornerstone, do not refer to a physical building, but to a spiritual one. Not built with physical stones, but built with living stones. Speaking of living stones, let's go back to verse 4. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the, in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter says that Jesus was a living stone. What does that mean? Last week when Jonathan told us that the first letter of Peter was written to the elect exiles, to followers of Jesus who lived in the Greek and Roman world, far from Jerusalem. They were like exiles because they worshiped Jesus in a land that worshiped the Greek and Roman gods. Of course, we know that those gods were not real. They were just statues made of cold, hard stone. You could pray all day to Zeus or Athena or Poseidon here, but they would never respond because they weren't alive. They weren't even really dead because they never even really existed. Jesus was not like that. He was a living stone. He was a living, breathing human being who was also God. Now, Peter knew this firsthand. He traveled with Jesus for three years. He even walked on water with Jesus. He saw Jesus talk and laugh and eat and drink and suffer and die. But Peter also saw that Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the grave after three days and ascended into heaven. Yes, he died, but now he's alive. He is a living stone. Now, since we are followers of Jesus, we are also like living stones. He is the cornerstone. We are like stones built upon that foundation to be a spiritual house, a new temple where the Spirit of God dwells. Now, here's another picture of that same wall on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This structure is made up of many stones that it has lasted for over 2,000 years because it's built on a solid foundation, a solid cornerstone. This is just a small part of a huge structure made up of hundreds of thousands of individual stones of all different shapes and sizes. Peter's image here is that we, like living stones, have been built up to be a spiritual house, a new temple, not made of actual stones, but made up of people, all of us who believe in Jesus. But his word pictures don't stop there. Not only are we a spiritual house, we are also a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. When Peter wrote this letter, the physical temple in Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish religion. 
And the priests were the only ones allowed to offer physical sacrifices at the temple. So to say that we are now a spiritual house and a holy priesthood was a major paradigm shift from the old way to the new way, from the Old Testament temple to the New Testament body of Christ. It all changed after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So let's take a few minutes to talk about these three images, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and the sacrifices. Peter writes in verse 5 that as living stones, we are being built up as a spiritual house, the temple of God where the Spirit of God dwells. This is a reference to the people of God, the church, the body of Christ, to you, to us as believers. We are the new temple, the new dwelling place for God. The old temple used to be the dwelling place for God. It was physically located in Jerusalem. At the temple, the priest would make sacrifices to God. The Ark of the Covenant, which held the original tablets of the Ten Commandments, was kept in the temple in a place called the Holy of Holies. This is where the presence of God was for much of the Old Testament times before Jesus came to earth. But when Jesus came, he was both God and man. So wherever he was, there was the presence of God, no longer only in the temple. The Gospel of John chapter 2 says, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was using the word temple to refer to his own physical body, which would be destroyed, crucified, but after three days, it would be raised again. His body is a temple of God. That's where the Spirit of God dwells. But when Jesus ascended into heaven, we became the body of Christ. We are God's temple. God's Spirit dwells in us, the family of God. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul wrote that you are God's temple, that God's Spirit dwells in you. All the yous in, the ver in this verse are plural, y'all. We are all together God's temple. The Spirit of God dwells in us. Now, my wife Patty and I have been a part of a Pulpit Rock Church small group for the past couple of years. Whenever we gather together, God's presence is with us, whether we are meeting in someone's home pre-COVID, whether we are hiking in the mountains, whether we're having a backyard barbecue, or like this week when we met on Zoom, this is where God dwells among us. We are like living stones built up as a spiritual house, like the temple of God. Having this close group of friends for fellowship and encouragement has been a significant sign of God's presence to us during the lockdown. At our Zoom Christmas party last month, many of us said that this small group was the very best thing about 2020. Except for Molly and MJ, they got married in 2020, so the small group came in a close second, I think, for them. In Matthew 18, 20, Jesus said, For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Something deeply spiritual happens when believers are together. Anywhere in the world, the very presence of God is in their midst. If you don't have a group like this, who love God, who love each other, who study God's Word together, who do life together, you can contact Caitlin Garrett here at the church. She'll help you find a group to be a part of. One of the best ways to help your story of me become a story of we is to join a small group with others in the family of God 
here at Pulpit Rock Church. Now, in addition to being a spiritual house, Peter also says that we believers are to be a holy priesthood with direct access to God. Before Jesus, there was a line of priests descended from Aaron, the brother of Moses, who mediated our access to God. This was based on hundreds of very strict rules in the Old Testament. If someone who was not a priest approached the presence of God in the temple, God might strike them dead. Regular people had to go through a priest to approach God. They didn't have direct access to God. Now, since Jesus was both God and man, when the disciples were in the presence of Jesus, they were in the presence of God. No priest was required. Now, since Jesus has ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to live in every believer, now we all have direct access to God. And that way, we are all priests, a holy priesthood. We can talk directly to God. We can learn the things of God. We can bring people to God. Because we are all priests, there is no spiritual separation between the pastors of our church and the people of our church. Pastor Jonathan is a godly man, an excellent preacher and leader, but he has no more access to God than any of us. The Holy Spirit can speak to us just like he can speak to Jonathan. We can study the Bible and help others to follow God just like he can. Now, think of how you have learned and grown in your faith over the years. Certainly, you have learned a lot of good Bible teaching from pastors like Jonathan or Susie or Kyle, but you've probably also learned a lot about living a godly life from people who aren't pastors, like your Sunday school teacher, people in your small group, a friend or coworker, a godly parent or grandparent, maybe even from your own kids. This is part of what we call the priesthood of believers. In 1 Timothy 2.2, Paul writes, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul, who was a missionary, an apostle, was writing this to Timothy, who was a pastor. But you'll notice that Timothy's students, who are just regular people like you and me, he called, Paul calls faithful men, are to be able to teach others themselves. Because of the priesthood of believers, every believer should be able to teach others to follow Jesus. We don't just leave that up to the pastors. We have all received blessings from others that have helped us mature in our faith. Make sure that you are paying it forward, that you are sharing the blessings that you have received with others. So whether you have walked with Christ for decades or are a brand new Christian, God is teaching you things about living a godly life that are meant to be invested in other people. Don't be greedy. Share the wealth. As living stones, we are a spiritual house. We are a holy priesthood. And in the last part of verse 5, Paul says that as priests, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. As Christ was the final sacrifice, so we also are sacrifices. The Old Testament law had a complex system of animal sacrifices for people to atone for their sins. If you were a Jewish person in those days, you would have to bring a spotless animal like a lamb to the temple for the priest to kill on the altar. It was a different kind of animal based on different sins. It was something that had great value to you that you were giving to God, a sacrifice to pay for your sins. But when Jesus died on the cross, he himself was the final 
and sinless sacrifice, the perfect, the spotless Lamb of God. And that ended the old system of animal sacrifices whose blood was spilled for our sins. Now that our sins have been paid for once and for all by Jesus, we no longer need to kill animals to atone for our sins. However, God still calls us to offer sacrifices to him, not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. In Romans 12:1, Paul appeals to us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So when Peter writes that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices, he is talking about living our very lives for God. We are living sacrifices. We are not killed, but our lives are poured out for God. We are living stones and we are living sacrifices. You can see this lived out in a beautiful way by the body of Christ right here in Colorado Springs. Churches in this city regularly join together to pour themselves out to serve the community. With projects like feeding the homeless at the Salvation Army, making bunk beds for foster families with Love Your Neighbor, with events like City Serve Day, organizations like Cause I Love You, or ministries like the Springs Rescue Mission, taking care of the homeless that partner with local churches. If you see a group of people sacrificing themselves for their neighbor in need in our city, probably it's the body of Christ in Colorado Springs. This is the kind of living sacrifice that God calls us to offer. Because Jesus and loved and served and poured out his life for people, we as his followers are called to love and serve and pour out our lives for others. This is part of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. Now, our church and our city are full of these opportunities for you to volunteer to be the hands and feet of Christ in our community. You can make an impact on someone's life. And you'll find that for most people who serve, it brings them a great sense of joy to be able to help others in this way. You can find several ways to serve on the Pulpit Rock Church website. Click on Connect and look for the Serve option. And since this is a story of we, invite a friend to join you. We are better together. So in just a few words in this passage, Peter tells us that we as believers are living stones. We are the temple of God's spirit. We are the holy priesthood. We are the living spiritual sacrifices. These are not things that any of us are individually, but they are things that we are when we join together. It's a story of we, not just a story of me. I like the way that Dallas Theological Seminary professor Thomas Constable uh, phrased it about First uh, Peter 2.5. This verse helps us appreciate how much we need each other as Christians. God has a purpose for all of us to fulfill together that we cannot fulfill individually on our own. The Christian who is not working in relationship with other Christians as fellow stones, as well as with Jesus Christ as his or her foundation, cannot fulfill God's complete purpose for him or her. While every Christian has an individual purpose, we also have a corporate purpose that we cannot fulfill unless we take our place among the community of Christians, that is the church. 
So for all of us who believe in Jesus, who are the living stones built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the precious cornerstone, in verse 9, Peter tells us who we are, how we fit into this big story of we. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God calls each one of us not just to be a part of a story of me, but to be a part of a much bigger story of we. We are a chosen race. Now, we're not physically related with the same DNA, but we're a real family, brothers and sisters in Christ, because we chose to follow God and we are chosen by God. We are a royal priesthood, no longer separated from God, depending on priests to grant us access to God. As followers of Jesus, we are a kingdom of priests with direct access to God. We are a holy nation. Like the exiled believers that Peter wrote this letters to, today's believers live in countries all over the world, but we are one holy nation in Christ. We are set apart in unity, regardless of what our earthly citizenship is, because we all follow the same king, Jesus, who sits on the heavenly throne. We are a people for his own possession. All of this is who we are, because we belong to God. We are chosen and precious in His sight. Our primary, primary identity isn't our nationality, our ethnicity, our family, our gender, our sexual preference, our political affiliation, even being a Cubs fan. Our identity, our primary identity, is that we belong to Christ. We are like living stones joined together on the foundation of Jesus, the cornerstone. This is who we are. But in this story, what is our role? What are we supposed to do? We are chosen, royal, holy, and possessed by God for a purpose, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. As people who, like Peter, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, we have been called out of a dark, lonely life of sin and despair, and called into the light of his grace and forgiveness, his fellowship and hope. This isn't just a story of me that we keep to ourselves. It's a story of we that God calls us to proclaim to the world. The good news of God's grace isn't just for you. It's for everyone. God, God called you to share that light with your family, your friends, your neighbors who are stuck in the dark. Invite them to join God's story, to be a part of God's family. Tell them what God has done for you, how you were alone, without hope and without God in the world, but now you are a part of the people of God. How because of your sin, you were in need of God's mercy, but now you have received his mercy through Jesus Christ. So as you look at your life as a believer, not just during the lockdown, but the way it was before and the way it'll be after, is your life as a believer a story of me or a story of we? Are you engaged in learning and growing and living life with other followers of Christ? Are you helping others to learn and grow, to mature as Christians? 
Are you joining with your brothers and sisters in Christ to serve others? A life lived for Christ is meant to be lived in community. Jesus calls you, Jesus calls me, Jesus calls all of us to a story of we, not just a story of me. Remember that picture of five million Cubs fans celebrating the World Series victory? Imagine what it'll be like in heaven, where we will be part of a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, praising God forever. That will be the truly perfect ending to the story of we. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he died on the cross for our sins and didn't call us to live an individual life separated, but he called us to the family of God. And I thank you for these people in this church and joining us online that are part of the family of God of Pulpit Rock Church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.